Welcome to the Augusta Golf Show podcast. Now, here's John Patrick. John Cook won 11 times on the PGA Tour, won another 10 times on the PGA Tour Champions Tour, played his college golf at Ohio State, won a U.S. Amateur, currently calls golf for the various tours on Golf Channel. Always a pleasure to welcome John Cook back to the Augusta Golf Show. How are you, John? I'm good, John. Thanks for having me. Well, Just, uh, been been busy, good busy, which is fine at my age. I never thought when I retired from golf I'd be more busy, you know, calling golf and playing golf. So I'm happy to do it. Love it. Do you? Do, do you? Do you really enjoy it? I do. I, I really do. You know, we we've talked so often, John, and you know, I love the game so much. It you know, from from a young child all the way through to you know, 44 years on, on the PGA Tour and PGA Tour champions. Um, I've, I've loved the walk. I've loved the game. Um, it, you know, the PGA Tour gave me, you know, our, you know, I, I talk, when I say we, I mean, my wife and I, Jan, um, given, us, given us our livelihood. And the more that I can stay in the game and talk about the game, um, maybe pass some fun knowledge on to the listeners or the viewers, uh, I, I love doing that. I'm, I'm so passionate about the game and so interested in, in the in the the way that the game is played now. Um, that you know, it just keeps me keeps my brain moving. Number one, keeps hmm. my body moving. Number two, <laughs> um, and uh, it's just you know, hopefully, you know, when I when I talk and I explain things or call shots or give my views, it's, you hopefully you hear the passion in my voice that. I love the game. I love to talk about the game. What do you think is the biggest difference between now and when you played? Uh, well, obviously the you know the, the distances that the, the players hit it these days, um, and I'm fascinated by it. I, I don't mind it. Um, I don't think golf courses are becoming you know obsolete. Uh, there's still ways that some of the great courses can defend themselves. Obviously, weather and conditions and. Um, you don't see tournament records being broken every single week. So I, I think that, you know, the, the golf ball debate, I think, is it might be valid. Yeah, the ball does going far. That's okay. <laughs> but I think the golf courses have ways to defend themselves, and the great ones certainly do. Um, you know, the, the newer ones, the longer ones, they're the ones that are getting destroyed. Um, but the old great ones, the Harbor Towns, the Colonials, the uh, you know, those are the ones that still pretty much can defend themselves. So it's, uh, you know, I, I'm fascinated by, you know, watching how these young players play the game and, and, and their strategies on these various golf courses. I want to get into the golf ball, but now you make me ask this question. What was, what's the hardest course you ever played? Well, the conditions, I think, um, really dictated, you know, the, dictated that whether, um, you know, it was a final round of, the 92 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach where the wind was blowing 35, 40 miles an hour. Uh, that was a tough day. But I, I think the toughest, you know, hole one to hole 72 uh, for me, I think, was probably a wing foot. Hmm. Um, it just, it just, you just have to step up on every single hole and hit the best shots you possibly can hit or it will expose you. Um, and that's for 72 straight holes. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it's a supreme test, I think, from the first tee shot on that first hole or the 10th hole if you're starting there and all the way through. So uh, a lot of great, tough golf courses. 
that we've played in major championships. But, I mean, from hole one to hole 72, I think uh, Wingfoot just uh, will really grab you and, uh, and test you. As we get into the playoffs and you look back on this year, men's professional golf, what's going to come to mind? What are you going to remember the most? Oh, there's, um, you know, so many stories, some new great stories, some old stories that have, you know, come back. Uh, I love the Ricky Fowler winning again at Detroit when he's been written off so many times, um, keeping that great attitude through the ups and downs and mostly the downs uh, to bring his game back and improve that golf swing that he, that, uh, you know, made him, you know, so great in the past. You have the Lucas Glover story from last week that uh, was just in- incredible. People don't realize golf, golf is hard, winning is hard on the PGA Tour or any tour for that matter. And to go through the peaks and valleys like Lucas did to come back and win a golf tournament on a wonderful golf course is is pretty amazing and, and you know a great story. The Nick Taylor, uh, the Canadian Nick Taylor, winning at the RBC Canadian Open in his home country, making a 75-footer on, you know, a playoff hole to win. I mean, those are the great, great stories that I love. Of course, the majors, obviously, all the all the great uh, events. Brian Harmon coming from, you know, basically nowhere. We all know how good he is. Um, but, you know, the golfing public now knows how gritty and what a big heart he has and how tough he is. Um, and he's been that way, you know, his whole career. Um, you know, those are just great stories. Yes, we have John Rahm. Yes, we have Scotty Scheffler. Yes, we have you know a great Wyndham Clark win at, at the U.S. Open. But some of these um, other stories just you know really grab you and uh, really make the game what it is right now. And that that's just stories. There's so many great players, John. Um, there's so much talent uh, on the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour that um, you know th- there's new stories every single week. We're talking with John Cook here on the Augusta Golf Show. Well, you mentioned, for me, the highlights and the spotlights, and this was something I did not expect. You know, I didn't think about the non-designated events being as compelling as they were. I understand the attractiveness of the the designated events, but the non-designated events were really great stories. Oh, absolutely, John. And and, and that's the reason I say all those, because you're going to get you know, your designated events, and of course you're going to have, you know, those players and you're going to have, you know, wonderful great winners and the, you know, the the, you know, the show ponies, the big stars, of course, you're going to have that. But, you know, without the other stories, um, you don't have, you know, the designated event stories. And, and that's what's so good about the game. And, you know, and the one problem I have with the, you know, signature events or the Mm-hmm. designated events or the elevated events is you may not have those those Lucas Glover stories or those Nick Taylor stories um, and you may not have those and that's what really makes this game great it's not just about the show ponies it's not just about the stars you know it's about the whole body of the PGA Tour membership and how great they are um, you know and yeah you want to finish in the top 70 get in the playoffs or the top 50 to you know, get in all the signature events and all the elevated events. Okay, I get that. They've had wonderful years, but, you know, you could go from the top 100 on down. Those guys had some pretty good years. They're a shot or two away from either winning golf tournaments or a couple shots here or there from being in the top 70 or the top 50. 
Um, so, you know, those are the stories I really look at, or who, who are those guys that are battling, you know, each and every single week? You know, you have your stars. They'll be there forever. Yeah, Justin Thomas missed the playoffs. So he had one bad year in his career. He's never had one. Let's see how he rebounds. Let's see how that story plays out next next year. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's what's so great about this game, John, is, is, is the stories. There's so many players with so many different stories. Amen. Is it is it deeper than it was when you played? Oh yeah, yeah, by by, by miles. Yeah. Um, I don't think the the players, the top players, are any greater, you know, than the Nicholases, the Watsons, the Ballesteroses, um, the Nick Prices, the Normans. But there's a hundred of them instead of you know thirty or forty or fifty. There's hundreds of of these great young, young players. Uh, playing this game. So, um, yeah, deeper, uh, definitely. Uh, there's no question about it. Um, but uh, I, I think that, you know, the top players are still the top players, and they would be in, in any era. Tell me what you think Tiger Woods is going to bring to the to the PGA Tour Policy Board. I think he's going to bring respect. Uh, I think he's going to bring passion. Uh, I've, I've sat on that board. Uh, on the policy board. I was a player director for three years, 2000 to 2002. Um, I know what goes on in those boardrooms, you know, with the independent directors and the commissioner sitting there and, you know, all the the other staff. And I, I sat on the board with uh, Tom Lehman, uh, Hal Sutton, and Mike Hulbert, and we came up with all kinds of things, you know, for the players. We represented the players, the membership. We were voted in by the players and the membership um, to do the best you know, in, in, you know, for the, the body. And I think what Tiger brings is another seat in the room, um, some respect, because quite honestly, I don't, I, I think that that room lost a lot of respect from the players from what, what happened earlier this year, you know, about the, uh, you know, the partnership with the PIF. So, uh, you know, and, and the player directors not knowing what's going on. Well, that's fractured. You know, that relationship is fractured, John. And, you know, they have to do some things to regain the trust of the players and the players that are sitting in that room. Uh, Tiger's not happy. Tiger's not happy at all what went on and how it went on. I think he's a very, very smart man, and he has a lot of ideas, and he's very well uh, versed and in, in the knowledge of what's going on. And I think he can sit in that room and command respect and you do need to listen to these other player directors because we not only are we great golfers, but we are very smart people and have a passion for the game. Um, we want the best for our membership. And I think that's what Tiger is going to bring to that room is respect, passion, and knowledge to get some things done in the right direction. I know most guests have hated this question. Do you think Jay Monahan survives all this? I don't see how. And I like Jay. I've known Jay a long time. Um, but I, I think he's, he's kind of bobbled from the start where he did not take a meeting early on when he could have and seen what direction everything could have gone. And then he could react to whatever. I think what, you know, Jay has done is really just reactionary to what, you know, the PIF and live have done, uh, quite honestly. And yeah, I mean, players are playing for a lot of money, but you know, it, it has been fractured. And, you know, when, when you sit in that position, and you're making these calls. Um, I, I just don't see how he how he makes it through. Honestly, I don't know who would be on a short list. 
And I think that's why he's still around is, you know, who's going to step in? <laughs> so it, it's, uh, he has a lot of work to do to regain the trust of the players uh, and that player directors in that boardroom. Um, I don't know what he can do to, you know, regain that respect and trust. So I, I, I'm not sure, uh, you know, where this, this layer is being peeled and what, you know, what is that next layer? So um, I don't know how he, he does survive, um, you know, quite honestly, and for how long he does. But, John, are we forgetting how he guided the tour through COVID? And well, th- yeah. I mean, I mean yeah, how he's, that was he's wonderful. Had it, he's had it tough and, since you know, he's had it tough since the very beginning. Oh, no question about it. I mean, that, that when he opened that cupboard door, there was a lot going on. <laughs> and, you know, one of the great things was golf came back within a couple of months. And, you know, the first, um, you know, the first sport or the first, you know, you know, uh, yeah, basically the first sport back from, from COVID was golf and how, how they did it. And absolutely, he has to be 100% committed for that. Um, and the way he guided through that, and there's no question about it. But this last one is, is really fractured, um, and it's taken its toll on uh, of a lot of people, and uh, him him being one of them. So um, maybe he gets, you know, some bonus points. Maybe that does help him last quite a bit longer if he can, you know, get to the point again of gaining respect in that boardroom and gaining respect from the player player body. Um, and, and making little steps along the way, then he probably does have a chance to survive. Would you be surprised? It, oh, what's the dog's name? <laughs> That's Kenny. Kenny from <laughs> That's Kenny after Venturi. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There you absolutely. go. Absolutely, he's a he's a, a year and a half, and uh, he's a Australian Labradoodle. So he is very playful, and uh, we, we love him to death. But of course, Kenny Venturi was, you know, a, a great lover of dogs and embraced many dogs for his guiding eyes for the blind and all kinds of, um, you know, great, uh, great foundation. So, um, we had to name our little puppy Kenny. Good. Um, <laughs> John, would you be surprised if, if the tour and the, and the PIF are not able to work out an agreement? Uh, I, I would, I, I think there's a way to coexist, John. I, I really do. I thought, I thought that there was a way early on to coexist. Um, and, you know, perhaps that, uh, you know, can happen, you know, whether you know, they'll figure out a way. I mean, there's, there's lots of events around the world. There's lots of, you know, lots of you know, golf to be played around the world. Um, so perhaps they can find some sort of integral schedule or integral, you know, way to, to, um, you know, mix and, and, and marry the two. Um, for you know players to come back to the PGA Tour from Live, I think that's going to be very difficult. Uh, whether they want to or not, how they're going to go about doing that, I'm not sure. But um, you know, there's there's got to be a way. Or if they don't, then they just they just split. I, and um, you know the, the tour was bleeding money. Quite honestly, they were bleeding money in litigation and fees, and you know the, the PIF they, with their unlimited funds, they could just keep going. Well, the PJ Tour couldn't do that, so they had to come to something. So I think that um, uh, I think that they'll come to some sort of uh, a, you know a little bit of integral you know schedule type of thing. Uh, I don't know how they're going to be able to do it. I'm sure sitting in that room, 
there's a lot of great minds trying to figure that out, and hopefully they'll get it done pretty soon. We're talking with John Cook here on the Augusta Golf Show. Let me talk about the Ryder Cup. School me on this, John, because I've always thought there was way too much attention paid to how players are playing going into the event and not enough attention given to how players might just find their best game, get inspired under those circumstances. So I guess I'm thinking about Justin. Um, Can you... Are there times, are there opportunities? Can you see players rising to the occasion? Or or do you need to spend all that time talking about someone who's not in the best form? No, there's absolutely if players can rise to that occasion, get challenged. Um, yeah, Justin Thomas did not have a very good year. By his own admission, by his own play, by what everybody saw. But you also saw a little bit of fight in him towards the end. Just didn't quite get it done. Um, first time he's you know, faced adversity in his life. I mean, he's never had a downtime as a junior college player um, or through the professional ranks. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, he adjusts to this and, you know, what kind of a story comes out of this. But to your point, I could absolutely see him in that room. He's, he's great in the, in the room. Um, I could see him as a pick. No question about it. Uh, he's, he was just outside the, the top 12 anyway, so it wouldn't be like they're going down to 35 to pick some guy. Um, they would just be going off the grid just a little bit, and that's what those picks are for. I think that he could find his game. I think he would be a, a great addition to the team in the room. As Scotty Sheffer said, I want players on this team to help us win. Haven't won over there since 1993. Uh, in, uh, you know, in in Europe or in the UK, mm-hmm. and Scotty Scheffler himself said, "I want the best players that give us the best chance to win." We haven't done that in a while, and if Zach Johnson thinks that Justin Thomas is one of those guys, absolutely put him on that team because you're going to need experience, you're going to need heart, you're going to need grit, um, you're going to need players that are not afraid of the big stage. Justin Thomas has won a lot of golf tournaments. He knows how to you know how he knows how to close things out. Um, he just didn't get there very often this year, but you get him in you know form, and he's as good as anybody in the world. Who's going to have a tougher job with their picks, Luke or Zach? I'm talking a little bit to Luke Donald in the airport the other day as we're all waiting for our delayed flight. <laughs> um, he says he feels a lot better about his team now than he did six months ago. Hmm. I think some of his young players are rounding into shape. Uh, they don't have any scar tissue from you know, some of the you know uh, the defeats. Uh, I, so I think he's in a pretty good place. Obviously, he's going to have some guys on the team that um, that a lot of the U.S. people don't really know who they are. Uh, but trust me, <laughs> they're very very good, and they are always driven. Uh, they're always the underdog, so they're always playing with a little bit of chip on their shoulder. Um, I, I think that. Zach has, you know, a, a, a few picks. You know, he probably could go down anywhere inside the top 20 and pick his other six players, and I think everybody would be fine with that. He could go straight down the list, and I think everybody would be fine with that too. So um, I think um, I think that Zach might have a little bit uh, extra uh, pressure on him. 
you know, to fill that 10, that 11 and 12 spot, I think the top 10 are probably pretty safe. Um, but it's that 11, 12 spot. You know, you've got Tony Finau in the top 20. Uh, he's won tournaments, but he's not been in form. Um, of course, Justin Thomas just outside. So uh, I think that, I think that Zach has got some, uh, he's got some sleepless nights coming up <laughs> between now and uh, the date of the pick, which I think might be the 6th of September, I think is what I hear. So um, I think Zach's got some, got some talking. You know, he's got some discussions to make, and then he's got some couple of sleepless nights and some phone calls to make. You mentioned Scotty Scheffler, number one player in the world. Is he the best player in the world right now? I mean, you look at his game, John. He is he is a ball-striking fool. I mean, he, he putted awful this year. Awful. I mean, he's, not, he's in, barely in the top 150 in putting. But he's the number one player in the world. That's how good he's hitting the golf ball. And you know maybe he'll start to get something, you know, in that in that flat stick. But I, I think that you know, tee to green, nobody hits it better than than Scotty Scheffler right now. Uh, he's done it for a while. It's not just a, a hot streak that he's on. Uh, he's just really really good, and he's succeeded at every level. And now he's starting to distance himself a little bit. Um, by the way that he strikes the golf ball. And if he doesn't get super frustrated with, with putting um, and finds just a way to relax and, and just, you know, demand the ball to go in the hole instead of wish the ball going in the hole, he can separate himself even further. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned great golf courses early on and them not being obsolete, and you mentioned rolling back the golf ball. And there was some news made this week about that. Do you think we're going to roll back the golf ball? I don't see how, John. Honestly, I know there's, you know, people that say that they should, and I just, you know, golf is a game where everybody can play the same equipment, the same stuff on the same golf courses, test themselves against the best, compare themselves. Um, you start rolling back a golf ball. Obviously, the manufacturers are going to take a huge, huge hit in trying to develop a golf ball that nobody's going to buy. Nobody outside the game of professional golf is going to go buy a ball that going that's going to go shorter. I don't see that happening. So there's there's ways now to just control it, um, not get things any you know any further. You know, they they you, we're using some antiquated methods on on testing. Uh, they get more, you know, testing up to date on exactly, you know, how fast the ball is coming off the club or whatever. There's a lot of other ways to slow the golf ball down without rolling it back, and you know, just, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, just shorten the tee. You can't use a tee that's more than whatever two and a half inches long, or you, you um, get the, you know, the club face, you know, kind of. Tighten up that sweet spot so where you have to hit it right in the middle of the club instead of out in the toe or on the heel and have it go the same distance. There's a lot of ways that you could do things um, to control the golf ball. So rolling it back, I, I think, is, is, is just a separation in what you know the great players of the game, how they play the game, and then the 95% of everybody else that plays the game um, – yeah, that that's how they do it. So I, I can't see. You know, I, I I don't like to see that separation. 
Do you think that the RNA and the USGA will kind of be forced into that decision after after what the tour has said, after what the PGAs around the world have said? I think so. Yeah, I mean the PGA Tour made it known, you know, where they stand. They don't they don't want it. They're not for it. Um, and I think that the USGA and the RNA will will fall in. I I can't imagine that there's going to be two tournaments on the you know PGA Tour or the LPGA Tour you know, that are run by the USGA and the, and the, and the RNA that now you're going to have to play a different, whole different set of <laughs> equipment for, for one week. I don't, I don't see how that could possibly happen. So yeah. I, I, I can't imagine that, uh, they wouldn't, you know, fall in line with the PGA tour and the various tours around the world. You know, you and I are about the same age. So every time I hear about bifurcation in the golf ball, I think of this, there was a time people might not remember, that over at the then British Open, you played a smaller golf ball. Is right. It, is it any different than that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I tried that that small ball the first time I went to the Open Championship in 1980. I played it for you know a practice round, and it was like I never played golf in my life. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea how far the ball was going. I couldn't I couldn't curve the ball. Um, I mean, it was. It was such an adjustment that after you know playing nine holes with it, I said, "Nope, this isn't going to work. <laughs> this is not going to happen." Um, and so I didn't feel like I, I wanted to adjust to you know for one week to play mm-hmm. a, a different piece of equipment. Um, and I, I can't imagine the the players doing that. I just you know, and and the governing bodies. I think that they'll come to their heads and come to their senses and say, "We we just can't separate you know the game of golf." I mean, there's enough going on, and whether we need to separate, you know, the the wonderful supporters of the game uh, from the wonderful players of the game, I, I I don't think that that's in the best interest of the game. You know, I know you wrapped up your competitive golf earlier this year, but I'm curious: is there any part of your game that's better today than it was 20 years ago? Of my game, yeah. Um, my temperament is a lot better. <laughs> I I don't have intermittent explosive disorder when I get inside yellow ropes anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I still enjoy the game, John. I love to play. Um, I'll be a member guest, member member, pro member guy uh, until I can't walk and play the game anymore. So I still enjoy going out. You know, once or twice a week, maybe I'll hit some balls. I'll go a couple weeks without playing at all, and I'll play you know three or four times in a week. Um, and I, I I still enjoy it. I still love going out. I still love to play. Um, my game is actually I've shot my age a couple times, okay. so um, that that was that was big. First time I did that, and then I beat my age one time playing with Kurt Byram, Sean O'Hare, and and Jake Byram. So I was playing with some pretty good players on a really good golf course. So. Um, it's still in there, John. It's still in there. I still have the passion. I still love it. But uh, I'm a way less grumpy when I come home from playing golf, and I'm a lot happier about it. Before I let you go, Grumpy, <laughs> um, let me throw some names at you. Just uh, tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I when I mention these people. Uh, ben Crenshaw. Just the absolute gentleman. Um, he and I... He, he kind of maybe took me under his wing a little bit when I turned professional because we were um, represented uh, McGregor Golf along with Tom Weiskopf. Nick. So I'm, I'm with Jack Nicholas, Tom Weiskopf, Ben Crenshaw, David Graham, and me. Hmm. 
So I was like the sixth man on the five-man team, but um, I did a lot of outings with Ben, uh, and we, we chatted a lot. We were very similar in you know, the way we approached things, the way we did things, and uh, he just, uh, we're friends to this day, you know, 40-some years later. How about Sevy? Sevy? Oh, my gosh. Genius. Um, just played the game differently than probably anybody ever played the game. The way that, you know, when he, he could hit, he was so imaginative. Uh, he, he, why he played so well at Augusta was he could use slope. He could, he didn't, he could hit the proper shot to use slope. Uh, he didn't fire at every pin. And if he did fire at a pin and, and miss, well, he's probably going to hold the next one. So, um, just genius in, in the way that, uh, he, you know, he kind of painted pictures uh, on the golf course. Jack. Just the number one. Just the number one. Um, you know, his record shows it. Uh, major championships. Uh, was always in the game. You know, really, um, he was the guy to beat. Uh, he didn't care who was up on that leaderboard. He just had his eye on whatever that number was. And, um, you know, eight, just can't, you can't... Uh, <laughs> 18 majors, man, and however many he had, however many other top threes, you know, in the 50s on how many other top threes he had. So um, Jack has always been very good to the Cook family and forever indebted uh, indebted to uh, to Jack Nicholas. Michelle Wee. Oh, nice. So, you know, I played in those couple of Hawaiian Opens, Sony Opens, uh, when she came out as a teenager. And when she got on the range when she was 14 years old, we all stopped to watch her hit golf balls. And it was impressive, <laughs> I must say. Um, she was no joke. It was unfortunate that just kind of the way, you know, things kind of happened with her. I, I think that if, you know, she did go to college, but I think maybe if, if she would have played some more, uh, in college, instead of just going professional, you know, and maybe you know, done it a little bit differently, um, we might see her still out there playing. But uh, incredible talent, wonderful young lady. Uh, spent a little bit of time with Michelle. She's uh, absolutely a, a joy to be around. But boy, does she have some talent? I mean, she really could have been dominant in in the ladies' game. Um, you know, if, if she kind of kept kept going and improving uh, at that pace. A uh, couple more. Bernhard. Jealous? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Bernhard, he's such the consummate, you know, thinker, professional. Um, he prepares harder than anybody else. Still has the love, you know, he has so much love for the game and the competitiveness that he's still working really hard at it. And at 66 years old, he's still out there, you know, walking around and winning golf tournaments and being still relevant in the game. Um, so I'm jealous of him that he has that. Uh, I, <laughs> I so like, long. I like that. Um, all right, two more. Uh, Phil Mickelson. Well, Phil, obviously, great respect for what he's done in the game uh, with his record all the way from, you know, an amateur winning a professional a PGA Tour event, all the way through his, you know, his, his major championship run. Um, 
six majors, I believe. I mean, that's that that's incredible in this day and age. Um, how he's gone about things, you know, not not a lot of respect there. The way that he handled a lot of situations, but as a golfer, absolutely 100% respect. I, I wish he would have respected his peers a little more. Um, Tiger always respected his peers on who he was playing with and how great they were and what their records were. I don't think Phil really did that. I wish he would have you know, been a, a little bit more conscious of how great the players were around him. Yeah, he was beaten, quite honestly, you know, and quite frequently. Um, but uh, I don't think that he had the respect for his peers uh, the way that uh, the other great players did. Well, and that was the last name I was going to ask about, Tiger. Yeah, just you know, getting to know him on that level that I did, uh, seeing how great he, and how hard he prepared uh, for major championships, being around him, watching the process, watching him improve from um, the time he came out on tour, you know, to ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one. Golf never, golf was never played that like that at that highest that that level. Um, on how how often he won. Uh, how he prepared, how much he wanted to learn, how how, you know, how he was never afraid to ask questions. That's why I talk about the respect. He would he would come to Mark O'Mara and myself and and ask about wedge play, ask about uh, trajectory control, ask about distance control. Um, he was always wanting to learn, but then to watch him prepare for a major championship, you know, two and three weeks out, he, when he got to you know the tournament site for the, these championships. He was just playing golf. He was never searching for anything. He wasn't searching for clubs or a swing. He's already done that. He was ready to go. Um, so great respect for the way that he prepared, um, you know, for the championships and, you know, just uh, being around him and, you know, basically keeping my, my career alive for a few more years, just, uh, you know, watching him play in practice and playing golf with him kind of you know, kept me motivated to play up, you know, into my late 40s. He is John Cook. John, you've given me much more time than I than I asked for, and I deeply, <laughs> I, love it. I deeply appreciate. We should have done this at one in the morning when you were at Hartsfield on on Monday morning. Yeah, I could have easily done that. I had plenty of time. <laughs> John, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, John. Anytime.